0: Well, friends, we are starting a new sermon series called Asking for a Friend, okay? And if you were here at Charter Oak Church a couple months ago, you might remember that we asked people to submit questions that you had about life, about the Bible, about about God. You know, what does God have to say about, you know, fill in the blank. Now, we received tons of questions, more questions than we could possibly answer in, over the next four weeks. We're going to do our best to try to, to address as many questions as we can. Some questions were very similar, so we were able to kind of like, you know, tie those together coming from the same perspective so some of you you might hear a question that you didn't necessarily ask but it still is kind of answering the question that that you were that you were curious about um, even though it might not be worded the same way that you submitted it now we're going to do our best as we answer these questions we're going to do our best to answer these from a biblical gospel centered worldview okay (laughs) Now, I recognize that as we engage in some of these answers to these questions, some of you actually might find yourself wondering if you disagree, right? And thinking, oh, is is that okay, right? Well, um, one of the things to remember whenever whenever Christians begin engaging different types of opinions on various issues, one of the things to remember is that there's a category, you could say, of what's called essential beliefs and non-essential beliefs. Now, Charter Oak Church has a list of essential beliefs, things that the church takes a firm stance on, but there are tons of things that Christians across the ages have referred to as non-essential beliefs. And non-essential beliefs are things that Christians can faithfully disagree on, even though they come together, they study the Bible together, they come to various conclusions, and they might disagree, but they can still disagree in love. So saying all of that it actually is actually going to set us up for our first question. Are you ready for it? Okay, a first question is this. When is division healthy in a church or a family? Thanks for starting us off on an easy one, guys. Okay, well, before we can even understand division, we got to actually we got to know the opposite. Before we can understand what, you know, from a Christian perspective about division, what is a Christian perspective on unity, right? We need to know what that is first. So, we're going to take a quick glance at 3 verses just back, 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 back to back, that talk a little bit about unity from, in the New Testament. So first, John 17, okay? This is Jesus talking to his disciples, and here's what he says. He's praying for the disciples, and he says, "Lord, you know, Father, I pr- my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's ta- Jesus is praying for you and me, people who will become Christians because of other Christians before them, the disciples. And then he says, what? My prayer is that they, all of them, may be one. You hear that? Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. All right, that's John 17. Ready for another one? 1 Corinthians 1. The Apostle Paul is writing to an early church and he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, what? agree with one another. You might be thinking, "Whoa, hold on." But we'll come, don't worry, we'll come back. Agree with one another in what you say and that there may be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. If you're thinking, "Huh?" Don't worry. Next, Ephesians 4, Paul writing to another group of early Christians, he says, "Make every effort to what? Keep the unity of the what? Spirit." Through the bond of peace, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, sorry for rushing. The first thing that needs to be said whenever the Bible is talking about unity, and the Apostle Paul brings this up most directly, is that unity does not come from us. Okay? Unity does not come from us. So actually, actually, uh, uh, Sean, go back to the Ephesians passage real quick. I want you guys to see this. Notice in the Ephesians passage, what what does Paul talk about when it comes to unity? He says, make every effort to keep the unity of what? Of the Spirit. And so unity, from a Christian perspective, is rooted in the Holy Spirit. You and I don't create unity. The Holy Spirit creates unity, and as Christians, we are called to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, unity originates in the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, who who, who creates unity. And that unity is is displayed, if you will, through a common submission to the authority of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That becomes the unity that is made through the Holy Spirit. A common submission to the authority of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Unity is found first and foremost through the common bond that all believers have when they submit to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Christian unity is not based on politics. It's not based on skin color. It's not based on music style. It's not based on wealth. It's not based on zip code, it, whatever. In the church, or I should say it this way, if the church is united on any one of those things and that's the only basis of their unity, it's gonna fall apart. Because then they're based on worldly human things as opposed to being a unified in the power of the Holy Spirit. If unity is based on the Holy Spirit, and here, you know, stay with me here, if unity is therefore meant to be based on the power of the Holy Spirit, what that means when we talk about unity is that unity is a spiritual reality. The word spiritual, whenever you use that in a Christian sense, the word spiritual just means something through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about, you know, like, oh, loosey-goosey stuff. We're talking the Holy Spirit is what causes this. Therefore, biblical unity is spiritual, not necessarily institutional. The Holy Spirit unites us, not human-based structures, buildings, or systems. Therefore, it's possible for two churches to actually experience spiritual unity, even if they are a part of a different building, a different denomination, or even in different countries. Now, the Bible does not, and this is another important thing to know, the Bible does not just Call Christians to unity just because unity is a really nice thing to have, right? It's like, oh, it's so. Look at how great they are. No, that's. It's deeper than that. When if unity becomes an end in and of itself, then we broken, sinful people. We tend to then avoid all of the hard things because we don't want to get into a disagreement because we might, oh no, make somebody upset and oh oh, no, that's what tends to happen if the goal is just unity in and of itself, right? And in time, you know, in some areas, that that can actually become this anything-goes attitude, right? Where all you let them do whatever they want to do because we don't want to hurt their feelings because then something might happen and we don't want to have unity, right? That's not the kind of unity that the Bible understands or is talking about. That kind of unity, it doesn't glorify God. The kind of unity that does, and I already said this, the kind of unity that glorifies God is unity where believers are all united through their common submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of God. That's the truth that we are, as Christians, called to be united in that Jesus Christ is Lord. For Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament, they did not, they, they, it, was, it would have been inconceivable for them to say that you could love another person by throwing away this need for truth and submission to the Lordship of Jesus just for the sake of unity. Oh, you know, we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to we're not going to talk about these things that are related to the authority of God and the lordship of Jesus because we want to make sure we stay together. They would have been, no, no, that's not unity that glorifies God. Now, all that being said, I haven't even answered the question yet. Aren't you happy with us? All right, all that being said, the question was, is division ever healthy? That was the question. Is division ever healthy? And the answer, the best answer I could give to this is sometimes. Throughout Scripture, we see that division is almost, almost always means that there is some form of sin or brokenness somewhere in the community, okay? Think about this in our relationships, right? If you have a friendship or a marriage or something like that that has to divide, it's not usually because everyone's like, everything's going well, <laughs> right? It's because there's some evidence of brokenness or sin present somewhere, and usually it's on both, both parties. And so this is just an uncomfortable reality that we have to admit that If there is division, it's usually a sign that there is somewhere in the community a failure to submit to God's truth. It could be the presence of selfish ambition, it could be you know a refusal to acknowledge bitterness or anger or resentment. You know, and I I don't want to use absolutes as if that's always the case, right? But more often than not, where division happens, there's a it's a symptom that something in the community is unbiblical or unhealthy. Therefore, If that's the case, division may at times be a last resort option in order to bring health to the body, right? Division may be a last resort option in order to bring health to the body. Now, In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has this really interesting comment. It's almost a side comment, okay, where he's dealing with Christians who are dividing over the practice of Holy Communion right within the the church, okay? And if you know anything about First Corinthians, it's all about how this church is just breaking apart. It's 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 nuts. But but anyway, in this what's going on is uh, in this passage, Christians are some some people in the church are engorging themselves, right? They're actually getting drunk during Holy Communion, and they're they're pushing all of a bunch of other people, specifically the people who are struggling with poverty. They're like, oh, no, you can't be a part of this, and they're making, they're not even letting them participate. And Paul is just he's fed up with what's going on in this in this church. At, at Corinth, And so as he's writing to them, pretty much like trying to you know, lay the hammer down as to this is not the way that Christians are called to act, he's frustrated, and in this text he kind of resigns the fact, well, at least the very fact that there's divisions among you is, shows which, who among you actually has true faith. Here's, here's what he says in full. As you can see, it's up on the screen. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, Paul's not encouraging division. He's not, a, he's not even approving of it to a certain degree. But he's saying, you know what? At least this division is going to prove who among you is really here to worship Jesus and which ones are just here to get their own way. At the very least, the fact that there's this division going on, it's going to reveal your true colors it's going to draw out from all of you what is actually true within you. You're not going to be able to hide anymore. The the, reality that this is happening means that at the very least, we're going to know who among you has true, genuine faith and who among you are just here to (laughs) along for the ride. There's a quote from theologian John Webster that I think sums this up well. He says, Conflict about the teaching of the apostles may prove a way in which God keeps the church in truth. Now, I assume whoever asked this question, I assume was wondering that this question is rooted in a bit in what's going on in our own denomination. We are part of the United Methodist Church. And as I say that, you know, I want to just remind all of you, in the midst of what's going on in our denomination, remember that institutional unity, right, being connected through human structures is not the same thing as spiritual unity. So that's the first thing to keep in mind in the midst of all of this. Second, it's very interesting, for those of you who, you know, kind of stay up to date with some of this stuff, it's been very interesting how the conflict going on in our denomination over the last many, 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 many years has drawn out and revealed the true colors of many churches and Christians, for better or for worse, on both sides of the aisle, okay? It's exposed a lot of the, 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 the real, what's the real motives behind what's going on. And lastly, I just think it's, it's, it's a challenge for us, it's, Many local churches, regardless, again, of denomination, in the midst of divisions going on within their own denominations, the, the, the conflict and the division challenges them, therefore, to discern what really are we supposed to be united over. And so, in a sense, the division is allowing many churches to explore how do we know whether or not we really are committed to the lordship of Jesus and the authority of God in our lives. So, all that being said, the answer is sometimes. Ready for the next question? And it leads us right into this next question the next question was this why are there so many different denominations any of you ever wondered that before there's 20 plus churches in jeanette did you know that right why are there so many different denominations well here's the answer because we have so many different denominations because people are different (laughs) all right ready moving on no just kidding first of all what is a denomination a denomination is another it's a human institution that organizes itself around matters of doctrine and structure. Okay, Doctrine are certain things that, that we believe about, the, about, about God, about the scriptures, etc. Structure, how is the church organized? Denominations are different groups of Christians gathering together under different beliefs and or structure. So for example, if you've ever been a part of a Baptist church or you've seen Baptist churches, you know, Baptist churches exist because they hold certain beliefs about baptism, and therefore they organize themselves around that. Um, other, other denominations, for example, Lutherans and Anglican churches, if you've ever seen those or been a part of those, they have they hold different beliefs about certain things, but they have a very similar structure. If you were going to see the way that they're structured as a church, they have very similar structures. Now, some churches, they exist because they have a They have a very strong conviction that a certain type of music or worship style is the best way to reach non-Christians. Whatever. Different denominations exist because there are so many different non-essential beliefs that I mentioned, which leads then to churches organizing themselves differently around these various kinds of beliefs. But remember, what makes us Christian is not the denomination. What makes us Christian is our submission to the Jesus as our Lord and Savior of our lives. Many non essential beliefs, however, make it difficult for Christians to function together, leading to different types of communities. Now, at the end of the day, though, the answer to this question is really a, a, his, a history. So put on your uh, history answer. So put on your history hat. I'm going to be the history teacher for a second. Where did all of these different denominations come from? First, realize, because many Christians don't realize this, realize that the first thousand years of Christian history, okay? So Jesus, he rose from the dead, started the church. A thousand years from that point on, there was just one church. There were no denominations for, for roughly the first thousand years of Christian history. Okay? There was one, and there's a, this is a phrase that comes from what's called something called the Nicene Creed. There's a phrase that was called the One Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. And the word Catholic is just a word that means universal, lowercase c. One Holy Universal Catholic Church, uh, Apostolic Church. the only difference between churches in the, for the first thousand years, the only difference was the location where they happened to be. Was the church located in Rome? The Christians in Rome. Was it the, the Christians who gathered in the city of, of Alexandria? Was it the Christians who gathered in the city of Constantinople? Right. You get the idea. That was the only difference. But then, in 1054 AD, the church in Rome broke away from all of the other churches over something that's much... I mean, we're not going to get into the reasons behind it, but, that, but this, this split from, from the city, the, the churches in Rome, uh, the Christians in Rome, they, they separated from all of the other existing churches, from other cities, and it had, this split had been brewing for a really, really long time, and then it finally happened. And the Christians who were living in Rome, the city of Rome, they eventually became known as the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? And the remaining churches were all located in cities that were east of Rome and they eventually became known as the Eastern Orthodox Church so for some of you if you're familiar with those different types of churches that's kind of why they get their names okay so it's 1054 AD and we have now have two different groups of Christians Roman Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches but then 500 years later in 1517 a man named Martin Luther who was a Roman Catholic priest he wanted to try and, and reform and protest against a variety of different doctrines within the Roman Catholic Church. He saw all kinds of corruption and, 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 and abuse of power happening, and he was trying to reform these things. Well, as he was protesting all of these doctrines, people, uh, Martin Luther and the people who followed him, they got this nickname from the people around them. They started calling them these Protestants. 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 Okay? And what then happened was... Eventually, all of these groups of Christians who, who found their you know, source, if you will, from protesting these doctrines became known as Protestant churches. And historically, this is called the Protestant Reformation. And so, um, ultimately, then, whenever you see a church that is not Catholic and not or- Eastern Orthodox, it's a Protestant church. As the centuries went by, Protestants kept disagreeing with one another, and they kept splitting after split, after split, after split, after split. Now, our own denomination, the Methodist Church, traces its roots all the way back to the 1700s in the Church of England. And there was a revival that was led by a man named John Wesley. And the, part, the people, they, they got this nickname, that they're Methodists, and that's a whole other story. But ultimately, they, it started out as just a revival inside another, another denomination, the Anglican Church or the Church of England. But after the Revolutionary War... We Americans wanted nothing to do with England, okay? And so to be a part of the Church of England, we were like, no, we, don't want to, we want to be our own people. And eventually that led to this birth of a new church in America, the Methodist Church. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what would Jesus think about all these different denominations, right? Like, if Jesus were here, which church would he be? Would Jesus be a Methodist? Or, you know, what, what, what would Jesus be? I mean, every denomination claims that Jesus would be at their church, right? But... I think Jesus would have some good things and some bad things to say about all that, which isn't surprising. No, first of all, realize that even during Jesus' day in Judaism, there were all kinds of different groups. It wasn't like it, there wasn't just one single you know, a group of, of people who were worshiping, worshiping God within Judaism, there were all kinds of different groups within Judaism, there were Pharisees. There were Sadducees, there were Essenes, there were Nazarites, there were Zealots, right? There were all these different groups. And Jesus never condemns people for being a part of a different group. When we read the stories of the gospel, we see Jesus only condemning people, not because of their, what group they were a part of, but because of how they viewed God or the way in which they were abusing God's word for how they would interact and love other people. And so I think Jesus understands the importance of diversity. There's a need sometimes for us to have different types of perspectives and views, but would be very, very frustrated with how whenever groups of people recognize that there's a difference, they immediately turn that into arrogance, saying that we are superior to others, right? I think one of the things Jesus would challenge us to do is to learn how to appreciate different denominations and learn how different denominations can actually help us understand different aspects of the truth of God that, that your own tribe might miss. Some churches, they overemphasize certain things, and other churches underemphasize certain things, and the only way you're going to be able to know what it is that you overemphasize or underemphasize is to be exposed to the way that other Christians encounter and worship God. Now the reality is, we are never going to know what denominations got it right and which ones got it wrong, until we get to heaven and so what we in some ways what we have to do is we just have to say you know what we're doing our best to figure out that we think we're on the right path regarding all of these issues and we reserve a certain level of humility along the way now that leads us to our next question regarding all these different denominations a person asked why do we have church buildings since they're not a part of the early church that's a fun question isn't it right why do we have church buildings since they're not a part of the early church well I don't know who you, which person asked this question, but I, unfortunately I have to tell you that there were buildings as part of the early church, just not the way that we think of them here in 21st century United States of America. So let's first take a look. Let's, we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning of the church, the birth of the church. This comes from Acts chapter 2, where Christians are given the Holy Spirit, and what do, we, what do, they, what do they do? Right? Immediately after they're given the Holy Spirit, what, do, what, do we, what does the church first do? Uh, Acts says this, the they, meaning the, the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the, by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to, any, to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together. Where in the temple courts? They broke bread. Where? "...in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." So the simplest answer to this question, and this is just one example, okay, is that the early Christians still used buildings. They still gathered together. Notice, we, they're, again, they're just not the way that we think of buildings. Many Jewish Christians still gather together as a body at the temple or at their local synagogue which was a building. They would still gather together for worship. Other Christians around the world, if they did not have a a structure that they could go to like a local synagogue, where would they gather? They would gather in their home. They would use the physical building of their home to be a place for people to gather, right? Now, the point here is that the building is just a gathering place. That's all it is. The, the build, there's nowhere in the Bible that says thou, thou shalt have a building. The point behind the early church is that they were looking for places where they could gather. And so maybe you've heard this before. Have you ever heard people say that the, the, the church is not a building? The church is a people, right? You don't go to church, you are the church. And so when it comes to gathering, a building just happens to be a convenient place to gather, but we could do church outside if we want to do it. If you want to, if you want to go buy us a field, let's, we'll go have church in a field, right? Buildings are not essential to the church. They are just a convenient place where they gather. What matters is the gathering, not the structure where they do gather. Now, I love this in Acts chapter 12. There's this little line that describes Peter trying to find the other believers, okay? He's looking for the church, and there's there's a whole story behind this, but as he's looking for the church, here's what it says. He says, Peter goes to the, where? The house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had, what? Gathered and praying. He's looking for the the church, and he looks for a a building. He knows they're, they're, they're gathering in a particular home. That's where the church is gathering. So the goal was not to find the building for Peter. The goal was to find the people. And the person who was hosting that church where the church was gathered was Mary, who is John, John Mark's mom. Okay, So John Mark's mom was the, was the person who had opened her home for the church and she was essentially hosting and potentially leading this church. Now speaking of Mary, John Mark's mother, let's tackle our final question. You guys ready? Ready. Here we go. The question is, why does Charter Oak Church allow women to preach? Now some of you might be thinking, why is that even a question that needs to be asked? Others of you might be sitting there wondering, I've been wondering this for years, what in the world is going on here? Okay. Now first of all, before I even tackle this, some different denominations and different churches take different stances on this issue, and if you're wondering again, why do they even take a stance? It's because of specific passages in the New Testament that bring up this issue. We're going to take a look at both of those passages very briefly, okay? This could be a whole sermon by itself, but I'm going to squeeze it into... Three minutes. Ready? The first passage comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2 that says this. Ready? And women, please don't don't throw anything at me as I read all this. 1 Timothy 2 first says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Okay? (laughs) Don't throw anything. The next passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, says this. It says, Women should remain silent in the churches they are not allowed to speak but <laughs> sorry but must be in submission as the law says if they want to inquire about something they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church what in the world's going on with these passages right now here's the first thing that we just have to admit these passages are in the bible and therefore we have to deal with them yes in these passages paul is forbidding something but the question is what is it And what we often have to do when it comes to these types of passages, we have to do basic biblical interpretation. And biblical interpretation requires doing multiple things. First, it it requires doing in-depth Bible study at very specific verses and sometimes even specific words. What is this verse talking about? But then you have to look at that particular verse or even word through the context of what is the whole of Scripture say about this as well. How do we reconcile those things? How do they potentially speak to one another, and on and on and on, okay? So that's what we're going to try to do. You ready? Let's take a look at first at the First Timothy passage. First Timothy 2, 11 to 12. We'll take a look at it again. It says, a woman, uh, Paul wrote this, and he wrote it to Timothy. He says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach her to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, verse 12 is often the verse... Uh, th- this verse is often the verse that is used in the Bible to, to say why a woman should not have a leadership position over a man. And the, the brutal reality, friends, is that verses like this have also been used for men to try to dominate women in all types of different situations and cultures, okay? It's been abused in all kinds of different ways. Now, the first thing we're going to take a look at is historical context. What was Paul writing this, this letter into? What was the situation he was writing to? Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, Okay. And Timothy was trying to pastor a small group of, church, of Christians in the ancient town of Ephesus. That's where he was located at the time. He was in Ephesus. Now, in the town of Ephesus, the primary religion was a pagan cult that worshipped the goddess of Artemis, okay? Or the, the Roman version of this same goddess was named Diana, all right? Now, this, this ancient pagan cult was a female-only cult, Therefore, the priests, or the priestesses, or whatever the term is, were only women. Women were the only ones who were allowed to, to, to really be a part of this ancient pagan cult to, uh, to Artemis in this ancient town of Ephesus. So in Ephesus, where Timothy is trying to lead this early group of Christians, he's, Paul's writing to him in the midst of a situation where women are holding dominance, in, in domination to a certain degree as well, in religious authority. Now, one of the things when we step back and we pay attention to what the gospel does, wherever the gospel goes, it's, it challenges the status quo, okay? If the gospel is not challenging the way you live your life, then you're probably not being challenged by the gospel. You're not letting yourself be challenged by the gospel, or it's not the gospel. The gospel will always challenge the status quo wherever it is, wherever that it goes. Now, in regards to gender roles, we see the gospel doing this all over the ancient world where it is constantly challenging so much of the ancient world's male dominated culture. Wherever we see, wherever the gospel goes, women are, are, are often empowered and lifted up to give, to, and given opportunities that they didn't have before in the ancient world. But here in Ephesus, it's the women that have power and authority rooted in this pagan religion. And therefore, some scholars have actually pointed out that verse 12 is Paul trying to warn Timothy to not allow this early church that's forming in Ephesus to morph into the, the broader religion of the day where it's a female-only cult, where, where, where women are, are leading, and, uh, leading this, this dominated pagan part of, of Ephesus. So that's one thing to keep in mind is this historical context that he's writing into. The second thing we're going to take a look at is some very specific kind of word studies as to of the Greek. Okay, ready? Now, the New Testament was not written in English. I hate to break it to you. It was written in the Greek. There's two words in verse 12 that we're going to take a deep dive into uh, that the way they get translated into English makes a huge impact in the way that we, we understand this. And stay with me, okay? The first word is the word Quiet. Right? It shows up there two times, quietness and the very last word, quiet. In the NIV, when we hear this word quiet, the way that it gets translated into English, we tend to hear that word and we think it means that Paul is saying, shut up and listen. Right? But this word in Greek that's used, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, it's used in Thessalonians and some other places, where When, when the, word, the word gets used in those other locations, the context, they change the translation to not be quiet, but to be, un, but to be this word in English, undisturbed, right? Or settled, those types of words. And the word, therefore, in these other contexts that is translated quiet here, is, used to, is often used to maintain a particular, you could say, order within the worship body, within the service. And so it's not saying, you know, women are never allowed to speak, as much as it's trying to imply that there's a sense of, of settledness or undisturbedness that needs to occur within the body. Now, the next word that we're going to take a look at is the word, this is, okay, it's, tec- it's three words in English, okay? The phrase assume authority over. Do you guys see that phrase up there? The phrase assume authority over. In Greek, it's actually one word. That's one word in Greek. It's, it's pronounced authentine, all right? Authentine, authority, authentine. Now, this is the only place in the entire Bible where this word is used, this Greek word. The only place in the Bible where this Greek word oftentimes is used. And, no, and, and when this word is used, it does not mean what it could be referred to as positive authority. Okay, There's a, there's a word that Paul could have used if that's what he wanted to say. Po- when I say positive authority, positive authority means when somebody is you know, rising in leadership or being called to leadership in some sense, and they're saying, oh, I'm going to take over this place because I'm being called to do this. Okay? That's the idea of positive authority. But this word is the word in Greek that is often used for negative authority. And negative authority is, the, is, is implying when somebody, you, you could say, usurps somebody else's position or is trying to use their authority to abuse or overcome somebody else in a negative way. And so most likely what Paul is prohibiting here is the use of a woman using negative authority or abuse to override or intrude or usurp another, per, another person's authority. Not necessarily saying that a woman is never allowed to engage in Spirit, Holy Spirit-empowered leadership or teaching. Now, when you add that to the historical context where they know that was happening in the town of Ephesus, you begin to see where where the, the interpretation of these verses are coming from. Now, some of you, you might be thinking, I need to know more, Pastor Ben. I am so, I've got to tell me more. And if that's you, I, I encourage you to reach out to me. You know, text me, email me, let's, let's get coffee so we can talk more about this if you want to learn more. But in a nutshell, this verse is, pro, is pro, prohibiting the abuse of authority by women within that culture in which female priests were already in control of all worship-related activities. Okay, there's another passage. You ready for it? Okay, 1 Corinthians 14. There's the other passage we, we cited, and there it is up on the screen. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing right now. You can see it up there. This text comes, um, as I said, it's in 1 Corinthians, and it comes in the, same book of the, in, the, in the same book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians. There's other places earlier where Paul is encouraging women to be interpreting and prophesying and even teaching, living into these gifts. And so sometimes it's like, what, how, how, do you, how do we conflict? How, those, those seem to conflict. How do we reconcile these two passages? Now, the view that makes the most sense about this passage stops, we have to step back and we have to take a look at the whole passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and the whole chapter is about disruptions in the worship service. Paul is trying to bring order to the worship service, and what's going on? What was going on in this setting was that many women during the worship service were interrupting their husbands to ask questions. And the the reasons why, it's a whole other historical question, Issue, but, but And that's why, if you see at the very end of this passage, it says, if they want to inquire about something, dot, 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 right? The, the, it reveals that what was happening was the women were, at, were wanting to inquire about certain things going on, and therefore they were asking questions, and it was leading to all kinds of conversation, and on, and on, and on. And so all of these questions were disrupting the worship service, preventing worship from being able to happen. And so the purpose behind this text is Paul trying to tell, to, tr- to tell the church in Corinth that the women need to wait until the service is over to be able to start asking all these questions and learn more because it's preventing worship from being able to happen. The purpose is not to silent women into submission, it's to maintain worship. Now, again, that's more we can talk about about that because one of the biggest challenges that we often have when, when facing these questions is how do we know when something is just cultural versus when is something a timeless command, right? That, that's one of the biggest challenges of biblical interpretation. When is something a very specific cultural command that we understand the purpose for it and what's the bigger truth versus when is something a timeless command that Christians need to obey at all times and places? Sometimes it's very easy to determine that, and other times it's very difficult to determine that. But the reality is we all do it. So, for example, at the very end of Romans 16, Paul gives a command to the Christians living in Rome. Do you know what he says to the Christians in Rome at the very end of Romans 16? He commands them to greet one another with a holy kiss. How many of you kissed each other when you got here this morning? Well, it could, one person could say, if you're not greeting one another with a holy kiss, then you're disobeying Scripture, right? Right? But other people say, no, we, not, we know that that doesn't apply to us today. because so, And I'm not trying to argue one way or the other, but I'm trying to say, do you see the complexity of trying to determine when is something cultural-specific versus when is something timeless? That's part of the debate. That is something if you want to learn more about, reach out to me and talk. Now, the last thing we're going to do is we're going to stop on this issue We just took a look at the two passages that are often cited to say why a woman should not be allowed to preach. Why does Charter Oak then allow women to preach? First of all, because of those interpretations that I just gave you. But second of all, because when you take a look at the broader whole of Scripture, we see a totally different narrative. Okay? First... I'm going to run, rush through these, okay? They're not on the screen, so write these down if you want to know what they are. First, in the opening pages of the Bible in Genesis, we see God creating a man and a woman to be companions, to be partners. There's a sense of equality that exists between these two, these two sexes, man and woman. They are meant to complete one another. Hierarchy and submission does not show up until after sin enters the world. And so it raises this question that God's original intent was not to be this this strong, hierarchical, this person oversees and dominates the other, but the original intent was to be a a companionship between two people that complement one another. Then, rushing ahead to Jesus' day, Jesus was a rabbi, and rabbis were, uh, were not allowed to teach women. But we see Jesus doing this time and time again throughout his entire ministry, constantly empowering and raising women up to teach them and giving them opportunity. Perhaps most famously, Luke chapter 10, there's these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus tells Mary that her decision to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn was the better decision as opposed to what Martha chose, which was to continue to do the household chores. Sometimes we see that passage and we're like, oh, you know, it's better to sit and pray as opposed to work in the kitchen. Maybe. But... One of the things that Jesus is doing is he's actually telling Mary that her decision to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn, that was, a, that was a, a job that only men were supposed to do. Women weren't allowed to learn from the rabbi, and yet Mary decided to do it, and so people are upset because she's breaking this gender stereotype. And Jesus says, no, 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 hold on. She's, she has actually chosen the, the better part. So Luke chapter 10, he's affirming Mary's decision. Uh, John chapter 20 right after Jesus rises from the dead the first person who sees that Jesus is alive is who? a woman named Mary Magdalene and what Jesus tells Mary to do is he looks at her and he says go and tell the others what you have seen you know go and tell the others that I am risen that Jesus is alive now the proclamation of the good news of Jesus the proclamation of the gospel is the declaration that the crucified Jesus is the risen Lord. And Jesus tells this woman Mary to go and find a group of men who are hiding in a corner to preach the good news of Jesus to this group of people. So the first person, arguably, who proclaims the gospel is Mary. Acts chapter 2 when the birth of the church uh, occurs the Holy Spirit falls upon all of the believers and Peter stands up and says this is a fulfillment of the Prophet Joel and in the Prophet Joel what it says is that women that that hold the Holy Spirit would pour be poured out upon men and women who would begin to prophesy and teach the Holy Spirit empowers both men and women that's from both Joel and Acts chapter 2 we briefly looked at this before Acts chapter 12 John Mark's mom was the one who was hosting the church. In the ancient world, the person who was often hosting the church was the person leading the church, okay? And so, it's possible that John Mark's mom was the one who was actually organizing and leading this, this, first, this early church. Acts chapter 18, we're introduced to these two people, Priscilla and Achilla. Priscilla, and, and, and her husband, Achilla, take Paul into their home. And later on, um, we see Priscilla often being the one who is at the, the forefront of trying to do the ministry. Achilla's along for the ride. I don't know what he was doing, but, but Priscilla often tends to be the person who's up front. Uh, later on in Acts chapter 18, we're told that Priscilla teaches a man named Apollos more about the Bible, more about how to, to preach God. So Priscilla's teaching another man, Apollos. Romans chapter 16, Paul comments, commends Priscilla as a co-worker in the faith implying that she is also just like up there just as much as he is, just like Paul. Romans 16 as well, we're introduced to another woman whose name is Junia, and Paul calls her an apostle, right? What, what, th- this is the, one of the only people that Paul refers to as an apostle, and he recognizes her by name and in the ancient world. To be an apostle was this high level of authority in the church. All of this, what I'm trying to say is, the weight of, of evidence across the scriptures where we see women being lifted up in authority and leadership and, and combined with these interpretations that we see in First Timothy and 1 Corinthians 14 is one of the reasons why we at Charter Oak Church are, are willing to lift up and empower women to take roles of leadership and authority and teaching as well. Now, like I said, we can keep talking about that. But as I wrap up this message and as we continue on in the series, I want to leave you with a very important quote that St. Augustine said almost 1,500 years ago. Here's what he said In essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty but in all things, love. Your questions are important, but as we wrestle with these questions together as a church, may we not forget that we are united in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. Let us make sure we are constantly returning and submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I praise you for the ability to discuss and learn and and dive into deep and important aspects of your word. And I pray that as we process all that we've just said this morning, that you would help us to reflect on how we might apply your word to our lives. And may we most of all, Lord, remember to worship you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.